We interact with God's Word this morning. A couple questions, thought questions. Is there any purpose in praying if you hold a grudge against another person or have an unforgiving spirit? Does God forgive you if you refuse to forgive others? In Mark chapter 11, why does Peter seem surprised that the fig tree had withered? Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 11, reading together verses 12 through 26. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 26. And as we read this portion of Scripture and as we discuss Mark, keep in mind that the identity, the character, the being of Jesus is so very, very important. He is unique. He is the Son of God. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit from the time frame of Mark's gospel. He's sensitive to God's Spirit. He's able to resist Satan. And some of that character is expressed in that he proclaimed the good news. Jesus taught with authority He quieted and cast out an evil spirit. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He healed various diseases and drove out many demons. He prayed. He talked to his father. He preached in the synagogue, and he drove out demons. He heals a man with leprosy. Keep in mind that when we talk about Mark's gospel, Christ is being uncovered or unveiled. Mark 11 and verse 12. And the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the fig tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priest and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven may forgive your sins. Now, Jesus had 
been in Bethany, and they're going from Bethany to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, you know, we, we find, as we discussed last week, Jesus in the temple cast out money changers and so on. So he again went to Bethany, and in the morning, this would be the second day after the triumphal entry, that he comes again to Jerusalem. And as you look at the context of the passage, as we mentioned last week, that we find Jesus is triumphantly entering Jerusalem, and then we have the cursing of the fig tree. Then we have the temple scene. And then we have the fig tree withering. And then we have Jesus again being rejected as king, but nevertheless still being the Davidic king. And the structure of Scripture is for a definite reason. Mark's placement of the cursing of the fig tree and Jesus' action in the temple in this sandwich pattern signifies that he intends readers to see or seal rather the fate of the unfaithful fig tree as a judgment on the unfruitful temple. He curses the fig tree. And then the worship in the temple is rejected. And then we find the fig tree is withered. But Jesus as Davidic king can do that because he is the king. Keep in mind in the temple, he had cast out the money changers. He had overturned tables. As we touched on last week, just a little picture of the temple. In the temple in Herod's day, a very, very large temple covering a lot of space. And he had cast out the money changers. So what happens? When evening came in verse 19, they went out of the city, probably to Bethany again. And in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. I want to explain some things about fig trees. After the fig harvest from mid-August to mid-October, the branches of the fig trees would sprout buds that remained underdeveloped throughout the winter. These buds swell into small knops known in Hebrew as pagum in mid-March and April, followed shortly by the sprouting of leaf buds on the same branches. Once the fig tree is in leaf, one therefore expects to find branches loaded with pagum in various stages of maturity. So when Jesus would have looked at the fig tree with leaves, he would have expected to see undeveloped figs that some people would eat. And that is implied in 11 and verse 13. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. 
Pagum are not ripe in the spring, but they can be eaten. The tree is deceptive, green in foliage, but no pagum. 11.13 really could be paraphrased as it was a, it was, of course, not the season for figs, but it was for pagum. Knew the undeveloped figs, but they were not even present. The fig tree was deceptive as the temple, which despite its religious cumrous and activity is really an outlaw's hideout. The curse of the fig tree is a symbol of God's judgment on the temple. Cursing to the fig tree, the money changers being driven out of the temple, their tables being overturned, and then seeing the fig tree cursed. What is true of the fig tree is true of the temple. What Jesus does in the temple goes beyond a purging or a corrective act. It attacks the very cumbrous upon which a temple cult depended, laying an axe at the root of the temple as an institution. Together with subsequent events of the Holy Week, Mark portrays the clearing of the temple, not as its restoration, but as as its dissolution. Like the fig tree, its function is withered from the roots. Later on, Jesus says in Mark 13, not one stone of the temple will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. In his own body, the temple was broken, and three days later, he was rose. Here he rose. So when we see this cursing of the fig tree with the temple between, basically Jesus is saying, temple worship is coming to an end. And remember, when Jesus came from the dead, or I'm sorry, when Jesus died, what happened? The veil in the temple was torn. There would no longer be worship in the temple because Christ becomes the one through whom we approach God. So Peter sees the fig tree. The others see it also. And he reminds the rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. And Jesus gives a response. Have faith in God. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Again, context of Scripture is so important. In the context of the passage, as you're reading through Mark, Jesus has been obedient to his Father. In chapter 10, 32 through 34, he talked about the fact that he's going to be handed over to the chief priests, teachers of the law. He's going to be condemned to death. He'll be mocked, he'll be split, spit on, he'll be flogged, and then he'll be killed. And then he'll rise. He's been obedient to his Father. He discussed the cross. In chapter 10, he, came, he states that he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In chapter 10, 46 through 52, in walking with his father, he heals a blind man. 
And then in chapter 11, as he is being obedient to his father, he sends two disciples for a cult. He's fulfilling prophecy. In chapter 11, 12 through 14, or 12 through 19, he drives out money changers from the temple, again being obedient to his father. So what Jesus is saying in verses 22 through 26 are in the context of Jesus being obedient to his father. The actions of Jesus came from knowing the Father's will and acting upon it. In the context, there's a focus on Scripture. In verses 9 and 10, there's a quote from the Old Testament on the day of triumphal entry. In verses 17, in verse 17, he quotes from Isaiah and Jeremiah, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you made it a den of robbers. And there's a focus on Christ's word in 33 and 34, 42 through 45, 52, and then in chapter 11. I said all that so that we can understand what Jesus is talking about in 22 through 26. When he says, have faith in God. No, I tell you the truth, anyone says of this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea and so on, it would happen. The context of Mark 11, 22 through 26 is one of faith, dependency, confidence in God. Not one's ability or being able to conjure up enough faith. Because the context is Jesus, who was walking with God, was obedient to God. Believing concerning the mountain would be confident that this is what God desires. Jesus had confidence in what he said and did because he knew it was the Father's will. So Jesus could walk into the temple and he could cast out the money changers, overturn their tables and so on because he knew he was doing the Father's will. He could say to the two men, go into the town and you will find a colt there. Get that colt and bring the colt to me. He was fulfilling the Father's will. The confidence to say, go throw yourself into the sea referring to the mountain, would come from being confident that this is what God desired. Believing that you will receive it, that is what you ask, is related to serving God and not getting for self. Jesus is in the context of serving his Father. And he says to the twelve, about responding to God. It's believing is related to God's word, to Christ's word. Does God, Christ, promise what you desire? Say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, would be confident that that's what God desired. In light of the context of Jesus fulfilling, and I'll give a couple examples in a minute. It seems the faith to believe 
you will receive what you ask is due to having a servant's heart and a confidence that it is God's will. And I think John, 1 John 1, 3, 21 through 24 have the same idea. Some of you may have heard of George Mueller. George Mueller took care of thousands of orphans over the years, and he would set his orphans down for breakfast. And thank God for what he was going, or what God was going to provide and not having anything there. Happened repeatedly, raised, multiplied thousands of dollars because he was confident he was in God's will. George Mueller having faith because he was confident he was doing what God wanted. And Scripture says quite a bit about caring for orphans. He was caring for orphans. So he would say, Lord, this is the need. You provide in one occasion. It was time for breakfast. And the milkman outside had broken down and said, I need somewhere to get rid of this milk. Do you have a need for it? He's doing God's will. This promise is not a selfish person trying to get what he or she wants. But for an obedient individual who is serving others with a deep dependency upon God and Christ's word. Such a person is willing to forgive his brother. It's not a selfish person saying, I want this, I want this, so that I can do what I want. It's a person who is walking with God, who is desired about God's glory, is desired about, concerned about God's word, and then responding accordingly. Forgiveness of a brother is directly related to God forgiving the individual. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him. So that your Father in heaven may all forgive you your sins. I can comment on it much this morning, but it's almost like if I have someone against a brother and I don't forgive, what does that mean about God forgiving me? And that is said in the context of prayer. Some examples of Mark 11, 22 through 26 in real life. Scripture clearly tells us that we are to forgive as God forgave us. Ephesians 4 and verse 32. Someone has deeply offended you and hurt you, and you know what Scripture says. You know it is God's will for you to forgive them. So you say, God, I got this mountain in my life. I've been hurt, deeply hurt by this individual, you tell me to forgive. I need your grace to forgive. Asking that with confidence that God will give you grace and then you extend forgiveness. I think that would be an example of Mark eleven twenty two through 26. Another one is you're going through a trial in life. It may be a relational trial. It may be a physical trial. I'll take a physical trial. You go into the doctor, and the doctor says, you've got two months to live at the best. 
And you weren't expecting to hear that. And you go to God and you say, God, how am I going to handle this? And God says, through His Spirit, you know, Scripture says that in your trial to rejoice. So you say, God, now I got this big mountain before me. Doctor says I got at the most two months to live and I'm to have an attitude of joy and I'm ready to curse you and die. I need the grace to rejoice in this trial. And God says, I'll extend that grace because it's my will for you to rejoice in your trial. That's an example, Mark 11, 22 through 26. You have this enemy in your life. It may be a coworker, maybe someone else, it may be a neighbor, but they're an enemy. And you know that it's God's will for you to love your enemy. <clears throat> Coming from Romans chapter 12, and you go to God and you say, God, I got this mountain in my life. I'm to love my enemy, but I can't do that. And God says, yes, you can, because I want to extend the grace for you to reach out and love your enemy. If you ask for anything in my name, believing that what you say will happen, it will be done for you. Another example, Mark eleven twenty two through 26, would be a husband, a father, who for years may have been somewhat passive, kind of laid back and really is not taking the initiative and in leading his wife and leading his family. And the Spirit of God really works on him through his reading a scripture and someone confronting him and rebuking him and saying, you need to wise up. <clears throat> and he says, God... How do I do this? I've been passive. I've been laid back. I haven't been loving my wife. I haven't really been leading my wife. I haven't been leading my children. What do I do? And God says, good, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to give you tons of wisdom so that you can begin to act because that's my will for you. And two years later, his wife says, I can't believe you're the same man. And his kids say, man, our dad is different. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will be done, it will be done for him. In the example I just gave, it is God's will for a husband and a father to lead. You can ask with confidence for wisdom, expecting God to respond. You're a student in school. You've been rejected repeatedly by other students because you're trying to do right. You're trying to be <clears throat> what God wants you to be. You don't go along with the crowd. You don't do what they would do. And you say, God, I'm tired of this. I can't take any more rejection. I'm tired of being made fun of. But God, I want to obey you in my trial. I want to have an attitude of joy. I want to be kind to those that are rejecting me. And I know that I'm in Christ, so give me an understanding of the power that is at work in me beyond what I can ask or comprehend and how that applies to what I'm facing. And God responds in a powerful way. I think that's an example of Mark eleven twenty-two through 26. What is the point 
Mark 11, 1 through 26. Jesus, as God's Son, demonstrates in various miracles and is teaching that he is worthy of worship and has authority over trees and over the temple. Jesus does not reveal himself to people who will not accept his authority. He doesn't reveal himself to the chief priests and teachers of the law, but he does reveal himself to the twelve who are responsive. Now, in light of the flow of the passage of Jesus rejecting the temple worship and then the fig tree being seen as withered, and then Jesus talking about you can ask for whatever you want. All of that ties together, and I would pose a question. What would Christ reject in our worship today? What would Christ reject in our worship today? If Jesus came into an average local church today, if we were living in that day, he would turn over this communion table. He would flip the piano and the organ and some other things and say, you know, your worship is not good. But we're living in this day and age. What would Jesus reject? I'll share a few thoughts with you. Exalting big names. The little person can't minister or do it well. Or the worship of celebrities. How many of you sitting here this morning think you're a second-class saint because you're not a pastor or a missionary? Or you're not some great musician I think God would say, look, it's not about the celebrities. It's not about the fifth and sixth class saints. You're all equal in Christ. I think he also might challenge us concerning authors, musicians, becoming wealthy by selling their stuff, making money with their products, concerts, books, and speaking. I'm not saying they're not worthy of being cared for, but I'm talking about the tremendous wealth. When Widow Brown takes $10 that she does not have to really spend and mail it to speaker so-and-so who is a millionaire I think there's something wrong that Jesus might say, this isn't right. The whole idea of promoting ourselves, our book, our music group, our product seems foreign to Christ. Promoting a local church seems to be foreign to Christ. Jesus is to be lifted up. I think most local churches have been guilty of it at times, but trying to promote who they are and all that they can do when we need to be lifting up Christ. 
So it's not about how great a church is. It's not how great a ministry is. It's not how great a book is. It's not great how great some musical group is. It's Christ. Study the Gospels. Christ did not promote himself. He was obedient to the Father. Tied in with that, people promote their book, their CD, their seminar as what is needed to change, to grow. Isn't Christ alone sufficient? We seem to add to Christ. And I'm not opposed to seminars and not opposed to books and so on. But my point is, when they're promoted and presented as, if you have this, you will change. God may use a book, a seminar, and so on, but it's ultimately Christ. I think sometimes we need to step back and say, you know, what might Christ condemn today? Some applications. I mentioned this one last week, but it bears repeating. Since Jesus is who he claims to be, what kind of life should we live? What kind of life should we live in light of Jesus claiming who he is? Some examples that I shared earlier. Just forgiveness of a person. Christ is the Son of God, and He is. If He came from the dead, if He taught all these things, if He healed people, then we should we not live a life of forgiveness. I sense that far too often we miss who Jesus is and His character, His identity, His being. He alone is sufficient. Our life seemed to show that if we run from, or that we run from one empty book, program, music group, speaker, and so on to another. And again, I'm not knocking speakers and music groups and programs and so on. I'm speaking to the fact that we think they can fix us when ultimately it's Christ. Just stop and ponder that, that it's Christ. Compare the temple of, in Jesus' day to the body of Christ today, just for sake of comparison. In Jesus' day, worship took place in the temple. Today there is no temple. The body of Christ <clears throat> is through whom God is working. So I would pose some questions. Jesus came down very strong in the chief priests and the teachers of the law. What would Jesus say about our leaders? Are they humble? Is there anyone they have not forgiven? What would Jesus say about me? What would Jesus say about our elders? What would Jesus say about Billy Graham, John MacArthur, Chip Ingram, and so on? See, the chief priests here are looking for ways to kill Jesus. Do we in the Wyoming Valley display godly fruit of the Spirit relationships? Thinking particularly of the body of Christ in our area. Is it possible 
that we could hear the condemnation of Jesus. If our relationships are not fruit of the Spirit relationships. Is it possible to have a leader who is not forgiven, thus he leads one who does not have, leads as one who does not have God's forgiveness? In the context, he, Jesus is speaking, and he's speaking to the twelve, and he clearly states, if you have something against a brother, forgive, so that your Father in heaven may forgive. So if a leader is not forgiving, then he's leading as one who is apparently not having God's forgiveness. a scary thought. In light of the history of church splits and new churches started by leaders who have not forgiven others, how many leaders of the church today in our area are not forgiven by God? Posing a question I'm not going to answer it because I'm not the one that needs to do that. But Jesus says some very heavy things. You know, he talks about prayer, asking for what you want, believing that God's going to respond. And then he brings up the issue of holding something against your brother. And he says, forgive so that your father may forgive you your sins. A heavy-duty thought. So you go down to McAllisterville, Pennsylvania, just a little beyond the area in which I grew up, about seven miles above Richfield. You go to a local church there that some 12 to 13 years ago, the pastor and a group of people left in a huff angry at the people that remained at the church. And to this day, that division is still present. What does that say about that leader? And I'm asking that same question in our area. I think it's a fair question. in light of the passage, in light of what Jesus says about the temple rulers, in light of the fact that in our own area, we've had more than a dozen splits in the greater Wyoming Valley where there's been unforgiveness. Stop. Ponder. Jesus says some very, very strong things. In the context, he offers some things about prayer, but again, it's in the context of forgiveness. Let's pray together. Father, we know that Jesus is the Messiah. In the passage we discussed, he rode into Jerusalem as the Messiah. But it was only a week later that he was crucified. 
The day after the triumphal entry, we know that he basically cursed the temple, came down very, very hard on those that were leading in temple worship. And then we know that the withered fig tree was seen, reminding again that just as the fig tree was cursed, the temple worship was being rejected. And then as a Davidic king, he goes on to speak about prayer. The fact that we can ask for things as we're confident they're his will, confident they would be his, your will, Father, in light of what you say in your word. And as we pray, Father, may we be a people who forgive. Again, for your glory. We know that this passage is pretty strong. What is said about the religion, the temple in the day of Jesus, the leaders in that day. May we understand what is being said in context, but then also be able to, in our own hearts, seek to worship you with the correct motivation and correct attitude for your glory. We want to be a people that are forgiving of people who pray with confidence. And Father, as we live in sensitivity to you, we want to be sought in light in our daily living. In Christ's name, amen.